Welcome back to the KPL Podcast. I'm your host, Jagisha. Listeners, this week on the podcast, I have bestselling author Vanessa Lilly, and we will be talking about her latest novel, Blood Sisters. And welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This is awesome. If you hear my dog snoring, I apologize in advance. <laughs> no, no, I don't hear him. Um, you were on the podcast actually before when your book for the best came out. So I'm so glad that you are back to do it again with us. Thanks for having me back. This is exciting. So I always ask, first question I always ask is just give us a summary, spoiler free about your book. Absolutely. So Blood Sisters is a story of Sid Walker, who is an archaeologist for the Bureau of Indian Affairs. She lives in Rhode Island and um, has left her rural Oklahoma hometown um, a few years ago, sort of swearing to never go back. Um, her sister has a drug problem and it um, she kind of puts some boundaries up, but she um, finds out that her sister has gone missing. And so she must return to her hometown to try to find her so that her sister is not like so many other women, unfortunately, who are a part of the uh, missing and murdered indigenous women crisis we're having in our country. Mm-hmm. So kind of the heart of the story is very much sisterhood, um, as well as the pursuit of justice. And I am um, Cherokee from Northeastern Oklahoma. So it's very personal to me in that way. Um, and I did my best to really incorporate um, as much truth in the fiction. There's, um, I did a lot of research as well as just incorporating my own experiences um, living in Northeastern Oklahoma, which has a, a pretty unique environmental perspective that I get into the book. It was um, one of the early EPA Superfund kind of disaster sites, places that had federal funding um, because mm-hmm. there was so much environmental pollution. And there's a big legacy um, in that part of the country. So I was able to kind of explore that Um, which I do like sharing because I know so many of us see those kinds of implications in our world today. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I, you know, there's a lot to talk about because there's so much going on in this book. And one of the first things um, that I wanted to talk about was, uh, so I read your author's note and you had mentioned uh, that this was uh, slightly based on two cases when you were in high school in Oklahoma. So, or at least that's what inspired the story. So could we talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. So right after I graduated high school, um, so in Northeastern Oklahoma, there's a couple small towns. I'm from a town called Miami. It's spelled like Miami, Florida, but we pronounce it Miami. And there's kind of a town about one over um, Welch, Oklahoma. And um, there are these two young ladies from Welch. Um, I believe they were both about 15 years old. And one terrible night, um, there was an invasion into one of the girls' homes and um, two to three men, probably three, um, came in, took the girls, murdered one of the girls' parents, left the bodies, set the trailer on fire. And the girls' bodies have never been recovered. And so I graduated in 1999. So it's been decades of searching. And the family has been front and center using every tool available, including social media. And so I've, you know, followed with a heavy heart, hoping they would find these girls, bring them to justice. And while this book is certainly not based on their case, what happened to them, one of the girls is Cherokee, but more than that, what happened to them is so parallel to what happens in so many communities 
when families are not believed, when the police are not active in investigations early, when there's a dismissal because it's a girl or a woman um, to not believe, you know, that the worst is happening. And so for me, their case was just another sad example of what's happening everywhere. And just certainly as someone who has been watching it for all of these years, I just had a lot of emotions about it and anger that I put into the story. I interviewed Nick Medina when his book, Sisters of the Lost Nation, came out. And he went into it a lot too. And just, you know, I hadn't been aware of the crisis until more recently. Like, I feel like now I'm starting to learn more about it. And it seems more of the agencies are talking to each other and, and at least more is being done now. Absolutely. I mean, we didn't really have a language around it until I believe it was around 2015. Um, we started seeing more of the term missing and murdered Indigenous women. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, for a lot of years, you know, we just sort of had people and women going missing, but we didn't quite know how to talk about it. Certainly we knew of it and it was in communities. But now that I think there's so much more organizing around it, actually social media has been a huge help, you know, mm-hmm. not only sharing information about people who are missing, but the advocacy piece and the grassroots Mm -hmm. and just sharing work being done, sharing of information and resources, I think has empowered people. Journalism is a big piece of this as well. I think there are a lot more, particularly native journalists who um, through social media have been building platforms and really getting the word out. So it's not unusual for people to have not really heard of this or maybe just briefly heard of it. And so I'm grateful to authors like Nick, um, who are also bringing these issues as front and center as we can. Mm -hmm. Yes. So tell me more about Sid. She's an archaeologist. And so describe her job. Like I really wanted to, I really just wanted to get deeper into her job. So the Bureau of Indian Affairs is a division within the Department of Interior. And it was originally conceived um, sort of like as a part of the Department of War. And it was a means of controlling and in many cases eradicating Native populations all over the country. And um, so there is a very dark history within Mm -hmm. BIA. And to this day, for very good reason, there exists a lot of distrust among tribes and the BIA. Um, That said, there is certainly um, many people within the organization that are trying to do work and help tribes. Particularly my brother has worked for BIA um, his whole career. My my uncle uh, worked his whole career for BIA. So I'm, you know, familiar with BIA and certainly believe in many of the good people who are within it, but that doesn't mean that we, you know, don't talk about also the challenges. Um, So for me, I wanted Sid to work for the BIA because to me, kind of creatively, it's very interesting of the BIA being, serves their history, you know, helps usher in their new future, uh, but at the same time works for an organization that historically has done the opposite of that. Um, So as a writer, that juxtaposition was very interesting to me. Also creatively, I my hope for this is for it to be an ongoing series. And there, you know, is another book coming um, for sure that I'm working on now. But, you know, my dream was sort of to follow Sid Walker as a character 
into other um, places in this country, other tribes to learn and elevate different issues going on. And so I wanted to create a character who would have access to those places. And I felt like BIA would be an interesting place. So that said, I chatted with my brother uh, about what I thought she could do, what would be the best job for her. And he connected me with um, a woman who is an archaeologist in BIA. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't necessarily thought about archaeology before, but listening to the way that she described her appreciation for culture and how, you know, a lot of her days are really spent understanding the tribes themselves and, Mm -hmm. and advocating and supporting them. It seemed more like kind of a proactive role that she takes in these communities. You know, it's not about necessarily digging up artifacts or bones. I mean, that's a part of the job, but Mm -hmm. it's about a lot more than that. So I started really exploring it. And I think for a lot of us, when we think archaeology, we think of like Indiana Jones <laughs> and, mm-hmm. you know, it's really much more complex than that. In fact, you know, <laughs> in a backwards lens, Indiana Jones is pretty problematic because he's like stealing artifacts that don't belong to him. <laughs> so um, that's a problem, but um, great movies, but you know, that is what it is. But for me, you know, I wanted to give her a job that I found, you know, very interesting. And I think, Archaeology also speaks to land, which is such a huge part of um, Indigenous people's stories. I mean, not just in America, all over. And um, and so, you know, for her to be connected to the land in that way, to be kind of out in nature a lot, also really appealed to me creatively. Um, and I, you know, just kind of saw her a little bit as a loner. I mean, she had a lot of trauma um, in her life. And I know trauma can manifest in a lot of ways. And I, I kind of saw her as a little bit of a quieter, more isolated person. I think, you know, at times she thinks, you know, she'd rather be around people than trees. Um, and so that kind of made sense to me, you know, from an author point of view as a character I'd want to follow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And actually, one of my questions was, uh, is this going to be a series actually down the line? So it's like it seemed like you were setting it up for that. So good. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> So yeah, it'll be exciting to see where she goes next, uh, her next case. It seemed, I think you kind of hinted at it at the end of the book, but <laughs> so she's got a case coming or was invited, I guess I should say. Yeah. So I, yeah. So I think that um, I ended up where I'm at right now and I'm actually writing it and revising it. So, you know, who knows how it'll end up be. That's always the fun part, but it, most of it this time is going to be right where I live now, which is in Rhode Island on Narragansett native land. I I think before I can move forward with this series, I mean, so it's so interesting to me because Blood Sisters is about Sid and her connection to her Cherokee tribe. And Sid is like me. I wrote her very much in my lane of experience. And, you know, my family is in Northeastern Oklahoma because of the Trail of Tears. And that is a very recent history. I mean, even though, you know, it was, um, you know, almost a couple hundred years ago that in the scope of tribes being on this land. It is recent history. Mm -hmm. And there was a separation, you know, my family was from kind of outside of um, Nashville. And so there was a separation from the land, the traditions, the culture, the medicines that we had had for thousands and thousands of years. Um, And, you know, we've sort of, I guess, you know, restarted in some ways, though, I think that disruption is very hard to uh, return to mm-hmm. you know, those levels again, of course, but certainly the Cherokee nation in Oklahoma is a very proud place and the work that has been done is incredible and the keeping of traditions. Um, there's a lot of pride there. Um, so that said, 
that's Sid's kind of experience and my experience. But what is here in Rhode Island, in Narragansett land, and the other tribes of southeastern um, New England, is so different than that, because they were here when the colonists stepped foot on this land, right? They're, and they're in the same place that they have been for tens of thousands of years. You know, there is a version of the Trail of Tears for the Narragansett here. Um, the war against the colonists, the worst war was the Great Swamp Massacre. And that's basically where the colonists came in and murdered women and children and pu- put um, most of the Narragansett into either indentured servitude here or ship them off to like Barbados in slave for slavery in the slave trade. So there was, a, and then a bunch of them fled. So there was a huge disruption here, but they are still on the same land that they have been. And the tribe itself is still here and they have the oldest recorded powwow in the country here. In fact, the word powwow was a Narragansett word. And so for me, just as a person who is native and and in many ways learning as much as anyone else, mm-hmm. I really want to understand the patterns of colonialism mm-hmm. and and what the kind of modern implications are right now. And, you know, with Sid's perspective of being sort of a tribe that is in a land that is not theirs versus being here protecting land that has been the Narragansett tribes for thousands of years and among the colonialists lineage as well is very kind of interesting to me. So that is what's in the old brain, the crock pot (laughs) of what I'm trying to explore. And that's, what's so exciting to me about the series is you know, for so many years, I think native representation has been such a monolith. I mean, even if, you know, besides what like racist Hollywood did of like cowboys and Indians and that kind of thing, but even just this idea of, you know, all native people are just are on reservations, for example, which that's many people's experience, but it's not all. So with this series, it's so exciting to me to be able to um, explore and share these different points of view that are representative and show the diversity of this experience um, because the original indigenous people, their ancestors, you know, are still here. And thankfully we're living in a time where there are authors like Nick Medina and so many others who are able to kind of share these perspectives and we're learning more. I'm learning all the time. I learn about new tribes all the time and, um, and it's really exciting and it's kind of a gift in my opinion, because I think there's just so much that we can learn from these old ways that have been mm-hmm. around for thousands and thousands of years on this land that we live on now. Yeah. Yeah. I have to agree with you. Cause I've spoken to quite a few, several native authors. So like Nick Medina, uh, Morgan Tulte, his, uh, night of living res, and he's a Penobscot native, yes. uh, from Maine. So completely different from Nick's tribe and Andrea Rogers is another author. So like, so I keep learning new things that I didn't even know. I didn't even know certain names of, of, of tribes. Uh, you know, you know, you know, like Cherokee, I knew, but there's so many others that I did not know about at all. Absolutely. Um, and, and it's exciting because these stories are being shared and there's, and there are just like lessons in beauty and culture that are now accessible to us. And I, and I am always learning new things. So it's, I'm grateful to those writers because mm-hmm. it is to me, it just feels like such a gift. Yes, absolutely. I have to agree. So 
you know, you kind of touched on the research that you did and you spoke to your brother, but this, there's so much here that you have to do research in this book. And I think even for future books. So how do you go about doing the research and what is there even primary documents for some of these things that for you to, to kind of look into? Yes. So, um, for the Cherokee side, you know, my family has kind of some, I'm so lucky that we have some historical documents. The, um, actually the main character, her last name is Walker. And that's my, Mm -hmm. The name of my family members who were on the Trail of Tears. And so I do kind of know which um, encampments they were taken to, where they walked, generally speaking. Um, certainly, I know where they landed, kind of what they did after they were there. So all of that I tried to incorporate into my main character. Um, it just felt like I wanted to share it in that way. And it was just sort of also a way of preserving it, I think, um, to put it in my book. And um, you know, we've been visiting that cemetery where that original um, family member um, was given Cherokee allotment land and things, you know, my grandmother's buried there, my grandfather, my family is there. Um, so, you know, in that respect, that part was not easy exactly, but it was there for me to learn from, but there's a lot in it around the town of Pitcher, Oklahoma, which is where, where most of the book is set. And I was sort of speaking a little bit earlier about the EPA Superfund site. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is a very complex issue. And mm-hmm. I certainly have been aware of it. Um, just kind of in summary, basically in the, was started in about the twenties. Mm-hmm. Um, it was there in Northeastern Oklahoma, they found ore and zinc, which was primarily used in like lead for warfare. So I've read different statistics, but generally speaking, most of the bullets for like world war one and two came out of Northeastern Oklahoma, sort of the, the gist of it. Um, and in order to get lead and zinc, um, you, you mine in the ground and you create these huge caverns and tunnel systems in order to get it out. And when that was booming, it was booming. And there were like almost 20,000 people who moved into Northeastern Oklahoma into Pitcher and there were jobs and economy. And then it went bust and all of those companies that had made all of that money off of the resources left and did nothing for the kind of infrastructure, if you will, that they had built. Mm-hmm. So all of those caverns and all of those mines filled with water and it turned into a devastating environmental pollution and the creeks run orange and have like acid rain. And to do the digging, they left what's sort of called mine tailings or chat, which is in the book a lot. And it's like little chipped rock and it's full of poison. And so like lead is in the air, the, um, so the children and the community that was left there had astronomical rates of, you know, lung problems, health problems, um, behavioral problems, very high rates of mental illness. Um, cause we're talking about lead that yeah. they're drinking and breathing and eating in some cases because it's in the soil. Um, and so, you know, that's picture. And so this book is set in 2008, which is at a real tipping point for this community, um, because they're trying to do a buyout program because it is so devastating and toxic. The government's trying to buy these people out of their community, um, which is a very emotional thing for a lot of people, not to mention many of them, you know, are not necessarily well off and their homes aren't really worth a whole lot. And so you're having to uproot yourself. You're given an amount of money that can barely start you over, which is also very scary. And the other layer on top of that is that that land was Quapaw land. So that's a tribe in Northeastern Oklahoma that actually had been moved for a second time. Their lines have been taken. They were moved 
somewhere else. And then they were moved one more time to Northeastern Oklahoma when that boom of minerals was discovered, the Bureau of Indian Affairs came in and essentially stole the rights from those tribal members. And it was really only just a few years ago that there was a lawsuit in which some of that money was reclaimed, but billions were taken from that community. Um, so there were, there's a lot of layers there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I kind of, you know, growing up there, I've written, you know, you write science projects. I was in, we would take little tubes of water out to the orange creeks near where we live and do testing and things. So it's always been something that I've either studied in some way, written about. Um, I also had, there's a wonderful woman named Rebecca Jim, who is an absolute environmental leader and advocate in Northeastern Oklahoma, who was a Count, uh, she was a native student counselor of mine and did like science club. And so she, you know, gave me a tour of the area as an adult. I mean, I've been to picture many times as a kid, but it's very different to go as an adult and to really think about it from the perspective of having to communicate it in a book. And so she is very generous with her time and mm-hmm. expertise, giving both the perspective of the land as well as the tribes, you know, that were there. And then of course now, it's a ghost town and um, it has been given back, if you will, to the Quapaw tribe, just a shell. It's actually worse than a shell because it's a poison place. It's, you know, it's not even just a neutral, nothing. It's a, you know, detrimental, scary um, place that, you know, no one can really safely live on. Oh yeah. So I was just, yeah. My next question was, is it has the, has it been cleaned up, but I guess it's not not even, not even close. In fact, I mean, it's, it's very far from that. Um, there's actually a conference right now, just finishing up about Northeastern Oklahoma that Rebecca Jim, the woman I mentioned is leading, um, you know, and I think there's been different solutions and things, but, um, no one has really, you know, been able to find a solution that works. It's either too expensive, you know, or it's not done properly. And it's just, it's, I mean, it's just an overwhelming in some cases issue. I mean, you're talking about the land itself, what's under the land, um, and then just the health of the people who were born and raised there. Huh. So could you tell us more about the term two spirit and what does oh. that mean? And especially in terms of Sid. Yeah. So um, two spirit is, it, it can be looked as a gender identity, um, though not, doesn't necessarily have to be sexuality. Um, mm-hmm. But two spirit is a phrase, actually a newer phrase, but is a concept that's very familiar to many tribes. Um, including Cherokee, which is this idea of a duality of both the feminine and masculine spirit kind of living within. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, it's a it's a term often used around queer identity, um, but it it also lends itself to, to there being something special about the person. Um, there's stories of tribes um, consulting with two spirits um, before going to battle or war. Um, and to me, it really just shows that there is like a respect and a special place um, for those individuals that have what's almost seen more like a gift. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the two-spirit movement within Native communities, you know, is often wonderfully connected to the queer community, which is one, which is great. Um, but it's also sort of a philosophy that I know a lot of two-spirit people take very seriously. Um, and I consider myself two-spirit as well. And so I was just very grateful to have the opportunity to make a character two-spirit mm-hmm. and have her, um, you know, just sort of make it 
you know, have a wife and it, you know, not be the dominating part of her story, but, a, you know, an important part of who she is. And, you know, I think like a lot of conversations right now happening about elevating issues in communities, I think how many tribes for generations have sort of loved and appreciated and honored to spirit. That's just like something I really wanted to elevate. Absolutely. So yeah, I've only recently learned about the the term. Um, and again, from Nick Medina actually is where I learned the term from his book. His character is also two-spirit in his book. Um, so, and I'm really hoping that Sid and Mal make it. Um, so yes. hopefully in the next book, we get to see more of that maybe. <laughs> yes, for sure. We do. Um, I was just trying to figure out what the dynamics of the relationship were. Actually, my editor and I were talking about it. Um because, you know, her wife, Mal, is a Black woman from Providence, and she has a community here, right? So she has her family here. And so I think in the next book, I am thinking a lot about what is community, because Sid is distanced from her. She's in Rhode Island, and her community is in Oklahoma. Um, and, you know, her wife does have a community here. Um, and so I do think I want to kind of bring in some of those elements to just... And community is such a big part. They're, you know, it, the book kind of opens where Sid has learned that Mal is pregnant and that they're, you know, going to have a baby. And, um, and so in the next book, it's very soon after the first book. And so Mal is still pregnant. And I think, you know, anytime you are bringing a child into the world, there are big questions about community and who, who's there for you and who you're raising your child around and what they're going to learn. And so I'm excited to, you know, explore some of that in their relationship too. Yeah, sounds good. I'm excited to to know more as uh as you write the next uh, set of books. So, is there anything else you'd like to add, or you know, is there a question that I should have asked that I didn't ask? No, I'm, you know, I think um just how exciting it is right now for Native Voices just to mm. you know recommend a couple other books if people are interested. There's this wonderful um, anthology out right now, Never Whistle at Night. Oh yes, I have it checked out. I'm. <laughs> I'm working Yay! Out. Oh, good. So there are, t- I believe, 28 Indigenous authors, and they're kind of, they're, it's like a perfect spooky season read. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a lot of names you will know, and then some new ones too. So definitely check that out. I also really loved, um, if you're looking for kind of mysteries and thrillers, um, and then She Fell by Alicia Elliott, a really compelling um, story of motherhood. Um also cultural identity. She's the Mohawk author. Um, and Jessica Johns, Bad Cree is such a fantastic, another fantastic book that I um, really loved. Um, and then if people are um, short story readers, I really love Chelsea T. Hicks's A Calm and Normal Heart, um, which is sort of, it's like young, fresh native fiction. She's an Osage writer. And I, I know a lot of people are going to be thinking about the Osage tribe because Killers of the Flower Moon is coming out soon mm-hmm. or will come out by the time this podcast airs. So, you know, there's a lot of history and tradition in the Osage tribe and, you know, she's a young, fresh voice. Um, and I should also, one more for horror fans, um, Andrea L. Rogers is another Cherokee author and she wrote this great short story collection that's actually illustrated it's so cool called man-made monsters and it follows one family um through the generations and there's different supernatural figures so there's just it's such an exciting time for native literature right now and i'm just 
excited, like so honored to be, you know, just one voice in this huge chorus um, that are lifting up these stories. So definitely get to read because there's a lot of good things. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I had Andrea Rogers on the podcast for that when the book came out, Man Made Monsters. So and she was just wonderful to talk to. So yes, absolutely. I'm having an event actually with her and I'm so excited to meet her in person. Oh, yeah, she's she's a lot of fun. (laughs) So thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast and just for writing the story and, and just giving us, you know, another perspective on Indigenous people. Well, thank you for reading and, um, and for all the the support I've received from libraries and librarians and the librarian community has been so incredible. And I absolutely lived in libraries as a kid, um, where I'm from in Northeast Oklahoma, there was only one library in the whole County and it happened to be in my town, thank God. So I was in the library, you know, all the time. And that's just, that access is so important for kids and adults too. So thank you for all the work you do to share stories. Yep. Thank you. That's our show this week. Thank you for listening. Join us next week when we speak to Clementine Taylor about her new novel, Something About Her.